Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is a group of 30 volunteer creatives working to help connect readers, authors, and independent bookstores during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. We've been so fortunate to talk with hundreds of authors on our live stream feeds on Facebook and YouTube throughout the past year, from debut writers to bestsellers and everyone in between. On today's episode, we're featuring one of our favorite Mighty Blaze guests, New York Times bestselling author, Elizabeth Berg. Ms. Berg is the author of 30 books, including True to Form, Open House, Talk Before Sleep, and her latest, I'll Be Seeing You, which was released in October 2020. According to the Boston Globe, her gift as a storyteller lies most profoundly in her ability to find the extraordinary in the ordinary, the remarkable in the everyday. A Mighty Blaze co-founder, Jenna Blum, talked to Ms. Berg about the heartbreak of losing loved ones, coping with writer envy, embarrassing cartoon crushes, and spectacular grilled cheese sandwiches. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Jenna and the warm, generous, and very talented Elizabeth Berg. We are live with Elizabeth Berg on a Mighty Blaze. Thank you so much for joining me, Jenna Blum, for our Frontliner Friday with one of the most beloved authors in the universe, not just to me personally, but when I put on my own Facebook page and social media that Elizabeth Berg was joining us today, people were like, oh, I love her so much. And this is true. It's like, you can go see, it's true. I love her so much. She's my favorite. She's my inspiration for writing. Um, I also love Elizabeth, like a fangirl. So I've had to actually prepare questions so I don't just sit here and like make heart eyes at you for an hour and ask you to tell stories. Um, but I'm going to embarrass you by reading your official bio from Penguin Random House. Um, and then I'm going to embarrass you by telling the story about the grilled cheese sandwich that you don't remember, but I remember. And then we're going to do some chatting about stuff. So Elizabeth Berg, I'm going to put my glasses on because I need them because I'm old now. Um, is Berg is the author of many best-selling novels, New York Times best-selling novels, I should say. I counted them last night. You have over 30 novels. Am I right? That is just... Well, like, yeah, 30 books. I, it's 20-something novels. 20-something. I was trying to sieve out the, the non-novels from the novels. I know you have like writing, how-to writing and memoir and novels, but lots of luscious novels. Um, book club collection, book club selections, Oprah's book club selection, um, the latest being the Arthur True Love series and the Confessions Club, um, and the Year of Pleasures Talk Before Sleep, which is one of my personal favorites. So it was such a guide to me during some tough times in my life. The Year of Pleasures, Durable Goods, Joy School, Poe of the Moon. Um, your work has been published in 30 countries. Three of your novels have been turned into TV movies. And some of your more popular Facebook posts have been collected in Make Someone Happy and Still Happy, which I would love to talk about because it's good to talk about happiness. And you live outside Chicago where I think you're joining us from today. Am I right? Right. 
Okay. All right. So we're both Midwestern girls today. Good Midwestern girls. Although as our producer, the fabulous and glittering Jenna Payone pointed out, you look like you're actually in a Nancy Myers movie, like <laughs> on, you know, Montauk somewhere. Um, so well done. Um, I need to like fangirl personally on Elizabeth because her kindness is so legendary to other authors. And I'm going to tell my story about this, that when I was, um, uh, starting out with my first book and it had this sort of miraculous success and became a New York Times bestseller, which was astonishing to everybody, mostly me. Um, I remembered reading a story and correct me if I'm making this up because I write fiction, so that's what I do. But I remembered reading a story that you and your best friend were both writers. And when you hit the bestseller list for the first time, you were so excited that you put the list on a t-shirt, which, I love because I think everything should be on a t-shirt like every time I say something even pseudo clever to my own ears I'm like oh gosh I should put that on a t-shirt so you put the bestseller list on a t-shirt and then your friend got really mad at you and stopped talking to you for a long time it um, was for my dad it was so uh -oh. bad yeah and then as long as I was getting one made for him I got one made for me to sleep in so Oh my gosh, that's such a good, you're already a much nicer person than I am because I'd be like, look, I have a t-shirt and it me on my t-shirt walking <laughs> up and down this billboard. Like I actually have a billboard upstairs wallpaper. in my office. <laughs> wallpaper, like makeup, you know, tattoos on my forehead, everything. So she does this for her dad. And I remembered reading this story and thinking, oh, I bet there are, you know, some pitfalls here in having this sudden really good thing land on you. It's like, you know, the house from the Wizard of Oz, like landing on you. And so I cold emailed Elizabeth, like care of her website and said, hi, I'm a baby author. This amazing thing just fell on me. Can you maybe give me some guidelines about how my life is going to change in both good ways and unanticipated ways. And Elizabeth not only wrote back to me right away, but when you came to Boston for your next book speaks, um, you said, well, let's go out to lunch. And I was like, no, you know, I'm so knock-kneed with like great fear and, and, and awe. Um, and we went to a diner. This is the grilled cheese sandwich part and had a grilled cheese sandwich and fries, which is like best meal ever and a malted. Um, and you talked to me about the ways in which, you know, I could expect my life to change and what it was like to be an author, like how to be an author basically. Um, and then we went and shopped for books at this giant book emporium. And it's like one of the top 10 experiences of my life. And so I always think of this as like quintessentially Elizabeth Berg. So many of us who love her books know that for me, they're like my comfort food. Like they're the books that I go to when I am feeling blue or when I'm feeling sad or disconnected, I know that I can open any page of any Elizabeth book. And even though the people are facing real hard things in the novels, there's always a gem of something hopeful or beautiful on each page. Um, and so for me, like the real life experience of knowing you is like that. So I'm just, I'm so happy to see you. Um, and I also think that that experience is so beautifully reflected in your books and your behavior. So Thank you for being here with us. Longest preamble ever. Um, I know people are much more excited to hear you talk than me. So like, shut up, Jenna. Let's talk to Elizabeth. I doubt it. You're so charming. In fact, uh, just keep talking. I'll just right? keep listening. But I, you know, I, I wanted to just say something at um, the beginning of all this. I'm just going to say the obvious. We're living in, in terrible, terrible, depressing times. And one of the ways that I deal with it, if, besides eating, 
is to really compartmentalize in a way I never have before. And what that lets me do is enjoy the thing, whether it's cutting open a red pepper and looking at the seeds and the color contrast and tasting things or looking at the sky or watching bees, Jenna. I told, I told Jenna P too, that I am so deeply grateful for what you guys do. It's not easy to take, first of all, the whole thing is not easy. I can't even imagine. But when you're a writer and you never know when you're gonna be in it, really in it, and then you have to be out of it for some arbitrary reason, it's really hard. It's a sacrifice. And you are doing so many wonderful things for so many people. So when I watch your interviews, I give in to them wholly and I am transported away and I don't hurt and I'm not confused or sad. I'm inspired, I'm galvanized. I, I wanna go get the book, you know, and I learn things every time. And I, I just, I hope you know how very much appreciated you are. And it's an honor to, to be on your show. Okay, we're five minutes in, I'm already like, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I do see like you posting and sharing our interviews, the Blaze interviews on Facebook. And I'm so glad, not just as my marketing core self, which admittedly is very strong in me, um, but because I feel the same way when I watch the interviews with the writers on the Blaze. It's my favorite thing that we do because it reconnects me with my writer self in a very pure way. To hear writers every Tuesday, you know, every Thursday, every Friday, talking about craft, how they make their books, how they separate the circumstances we're living in now from their lives. And just each of the interviews contains these gems, right? So I feel like it's almost like the master class in a very informal way every, every week. And I love that. So thank you for sharing that wealth. Um, and I know we had talked a little bit before the call about um, setting intentions and you had wanted to set an intention for our talk, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Well, well that so, following what I just said, um, in, in terms of setting an intention, I, I would just hope that we can all set aside everything else just for this time that we all have together and, um, and just um, have a good time. I almost mixed martinis, but it's only me. <laughs> it very sloppy if I did that, but I but I hope um, if anyone's watching that you that you'll just you know get comfortable and feel free to ask questions and and um, and just be here now as they say. And then I have I have a little something about setting intentions uh, to say at the end. So we'll get to that at the end. I'm so excited. Thank you. And I'm glad you didn't tell me about the martinis beforehand because I would have made myself a big gin and tonic with my thing right now. I'm just going to show you like what I drink when I'm here in Minnesota. You will find us, somebody who used to live in Minneapolis, you will appreciate why I had to buy this. It's very literary. It's blue. Oh, gin and tonics. I saw this and I was like, home, Paul Bunyan, babe, the blue ox. So, you know, this is my, my nod to like my second, my writing home that I'm in. Yes, and what do you like to drink these days? Let's start the interview with that because I feel like that's a very happy making thing, right? Well, first of all, I'm a terrible drinker, terrible, terrible. <laughs> I get I, I get three sips into a martini and I'm lying on the table. So uh, talk about a cheap date, cheap drunk. Um, 
I never liked drinking all in college when I was in my 20s. I didn't like it. I just didn't like it. And then I had a martini and I said, oh, I get it. Uh, so for a long time, I liked Bombay Sapphire Gin Martinis. That was my drink with blue cheese olives, three yeah. of them, and um, or four if I could get away with it. And um, now it's vodka because of my friend Phyllis of T-shirt fame, um, who, by the way, is a wonderful writer. Can I just say, she has not published um, a book yet, but her essays are online. If you go to, I think it's phyllisflorin, F-L-O-R-I-N.com. She has a number of essays and there's one, my very favorite is called Prairie Music. And if you go to the site, phyllisflorin.com, um, it, I think she called the collection Domestic Epiphanies. And Prairie Music is about her old bachelor uncle who lives on the prairie by himself and listens to jazz records and it's the most beautiful essay I think I've ever read so she's she's a great writer and and I think part of I, I just want to defend her for getting mad at me about the t-shirt because it's hard sometimes when your friends are doing well and then they're doing well and then they're doing well and then this happens and then that happens and after a while unless you're an exceedingly gracious person you kind of feel like Ah, don't even tell me anymore. So I, I, I have no idea what that's like. You know, I have no illustrious friends who are doing amazing things. I mean, there is, a, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Like every writer knows what that's like. Every writer, no matter what stage. I had this great um, uh, keynote for keynote, uh, the Grub Street Muse and, Muse and Marketplace Writers Conference. Why is that hard to say when I haven't been hitting the gin yet? Who knows? It's a suggestion. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> Yeah, I'm such a cheap drunk. I just wave the bottle around and I'm like, uh, you don't know me. Anyway, so um, yeah, so we were talking about writer envy. One of the audience questions was about writer envy and how do you deal with writer envy? And I was just saying, it's just a fact of life. And it's because, you know, people can be winning accolades and star reviews and prizes and their books get made into movies and series. And that's great. But at some point, we all have to go back to the chair and the empty screen or the empty notebook and the pen. And so it's like this, this Ferris wheel and you're always gonna be down and then back up and then down and then back up. So I love that you have this really long lasting writer friendship and have watched that cycle. Her oh, she, she did a lot of work to get through it, I have to say. And it was a very painful time. I, I was at the time flying out to San Francisco once a month where she lived from Boston. And to go there and not see her was, was really, really awful. Mm -hmm. but, she, but she did, and she wrote about it in, um, I did a book on writing called Escaping into the Open. And she wrote about getting through that um, in that book. She, she contributed um, uh, that experience, which was really great of her. Yeah. I, I said, you know, I get excited for writers who do well. I'm, I'm glad for them if I like them. There are some writers, I have to say it, there are some writers I don't like, I don't like so much. Not many, but there are a few. And when they do super well, then I get, I'm not gonna, let's no, see. Let me stay on the show. But anyway, then I get, um, it's not even jealous. It's just that I start thinking, I know writers who are so much better than you and are not getting the attention that you are. And it pisses me off. So um, yeah, but for, but I, I am 
I think I think it can be said about all of us writers too that we love reading so much that we're really glad when somebody does a beautiful work of art and um, as, uh, to immerse yourself in and to take flight with. It's such a service. It is, and especially now, I've heard so many people, readers and writers and writers who are readers say it's so hard to read right now. My attention is so fragmented and um, I feel always grateful as a writer when I can get sucked into a book without thinking about how it was put together. Right? This is like a sort of a casualty of writing professionally, I think, for me at least, is that you are always looking for how the sausage is being made and how did he or she do this or that. So when I have a story that enraptures me, and lifts me out of my daily life and pulls me into it completely. I'm so, so grateful. And I have to say, and I'm, just, I'm gonna sound like a sycophant, um, but like everything I read of yours is like that. And that's partly why I treasure your book so much is I know that they're gonna take me out. Remember the Calgon commercial? Like Calgon, take me away. It's like, your books are like the Calgon that I, I think, oh good, there's a new Elizabeth Berg Calgon out that's gonna take me away from the quotidian and bring me into this world where things are real, but they also feel good. <laughs> so that's so great. And oh, you're doing well, that happens. It, it, I think it's true. And the new books, which I was reading on a screen, um, and I never read on a screen, so such is my love for you oh, that I'm I know, it's on awful. a screen, but you have it behind you, I'll be seeing you. It, it sucked me right in, even though I was reading on a screen, and I forgot to be cranky that I was reading on a screen. So for those of you who haven't yet put this book on your radar, I'll be seeing you, which is also one of my favorite songs, and if I had drunk the gin, I would sing it, um, is a memoir about Elizabeth's parents and their, what you call their outsized love affair with each other and also their decline. So like really big themes of parents and aging and aging parents and love and love stories. And I just, of course, on like the first, you know, sentences, I found things to plug into. So I have so many questions about it. But can you tell readers a little bit more about what prompted you to write this memoir? Sure. Um, dealing with aging parents is something that if you're lucky enough to have your parents live a long time, you're going to have to deal with. And it is such a complex mix of many strong emotions including anger, frustration, confusion, but also humor and grace and great love. And it was so big. And I, I don't know about you um, as a writer, but when something is so big inside me, the way I get it out is by writing about it. So I, I did that to, to get to, because it was getting so crowded in here in my soul. So I got it out onto the page and then um, I realized after I'd written it that what I really hoped this book would do is, is to provide my experience so people could bounce their own experience off of, and, and, it, would, it, and it would let them know that it's okay if you just want to murder somebody. It's okay if you weep and weep and weep. It's okay if you don't understand why your parents are changing their mind back and forth. Yes, I want to move out of the house. No, I don't want to move out of the house. And, and all that, you know, it, 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 as in all things like this, life doesn't stop. You may have a minor crisis in that your parents are faltering badly, but then life goes on in other ways too. So there are attendant catastrophes that happen. And, and the book is meant to be 
a kind of, of cheerleader for getting through these hard times. So that in that respect, it applies not only to aging parents, but to any huge event that can happen like that in your life. Um, I have to tell you that, you know how when authors go on tour and, and people say, what book do you like best? And they say, oh, this one. And everybody goes, oh, you're just saying that because it's the new one. This is not my favorite book. The story of Arthur True Love is my favorite book, but I think this is the best thing I've ever written. Um, so uh, I will stand by that. And, and I think that um, if, you, if you pick it up and read a few pages, you'll, you'll get engaged. I read a very brief part um, the last time there was a book festival that I went to, which was about 2000 years ago. And it was from the end. And the way I can tell that I've written a book to my satisfaction is if I read it again and again and again, and I still like it. And that's what happened with this one. Uh-oh. I muted myself because somebody was knocking on my back door because it's Minnesota. People do that here instead of like making appointments like months in advance to come over. I have no idea who it was, but it might be like Paul Bunyan or something. Um, I, I actually almost like went to look. It's like, I want, I want my ox back. Okay. Um, I, I love this story. And I think there's so many things about it that, that strike a chord with me. One being that you'll admit to having a favorite child like among your work or, or not the favorite child. And I wanted to ask more about Arthur True Love too. So readers can be introduced to that book if they haven't read it yet. And the, the continuation of his series. But why do you think, because I have this assessment too. Somebody asked me recently, I haven't read any of your work, which, which is your best novel? And then wrote, ha ha, right? And I was like, don't say ha ha. I think I know which, which one it is. And because this friend was a writing teacher, I could tell him candidly, this is the one I think is the best. Um, why do you think I'll be seeing you as your best work? I, I began being published as a nonfiction writer. And there is a kind of ease and fluidity in my nonfiction writing um, that I hope is also in, in fiction, but, but it's not as easy for me to write fiction as it is nonfiction. Um, and there is a kind of precision in word choice and phrasing and, um, and a kind of accidental uh, structure that emerged because of course this is nonfiction. so I wasn't saying oh I think this scene should follow this it just happened and it made its own story um, but I think that it's it, a friend just wrote to me about this a wonderful writer named Jessica Treadway who by the way has a, a book out called The Gretchen Question which is such a good book club book so many so much to talk about anyway Jessica wrote me and she said, you know, a lot of times when I read memoirs, I find that I can't relate to them because the authors are talking about things that just don't pertain to me at all. But I could relate to this. She said it was so abundant, the things in here that I could relate to. So um, I, I think that helps make for a good reading experience. 
I love that. So I'm going to ask you to move a little bit closer to us if you can, because I just got a message from our fabulous producer that you got a little quiet. So you have to project, as we used to say in elucidation classes. Um, good. How is that, everybody? Is that better? Say something. Spinach in my tea. No. And I think you're. I think you're not quite as quiet now. Yeah, Jessica Treadway is a great writer, and the Gretchen question is is wonderful. And anybody who has a book club should read it. Um, I actually deviated from writing fiction for the first time ever to write a memoir. And I found it a little bit easier in the sense that I didn't have to create the plot, which for me is the hardest part, because as you said, it happened. And I personally love as a reader, reading career novelists, essays and memoirs sort of gets me through the tougher parts of my own life. I feel as though these people who I so admire because they've created these vivid imaginary worlds that help show the emotional truths of people's lives, they then show the emotional truths of their own lives and it acts as like almost like a rope over a chasm that I'm pulling myself across like bit by bit, right? For instance, Anne Patchett, who so many of us revere as a novelist, my favorite work of hers is an essay collection called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Me too, right? me too. <laughs> right? Yeah. I love this and she talks about being a dog mom and about getting married and about becoming a writer and about training to be on, in the police academy and you know, all these things. But when my mom was sick, when she was more sick, I was gravitating not to fiction for escape, but to essays so that I could pull myself across the chasm. And when I was reading I'll Be Seeing You, I, it was so fascinating to me to know your work very conversantly as a novelist um, and to see the same generosity of vision at work um, in the amplification of beautiful daily things, but then also to have these moments of connection where it was like this very simple statement where your soul is just laid bare. It's like a, you know, a wire connecting with another wire. It's like me connecting with you as the reader to the writer. Like, um, and one of them was about partnership, like early on in the memoir, um, saying like my parents' love story was so outsized and so wonderful. And I have failed at, at partnerships or failed at relationships. And even in my relationship now, which I know is a long-term happy partnership, like I fail all the time and he's very patient. And I just thought what remarkable clarity of self-assessment um, and what it was just stated so simply. And I admire that more than I can say. Do you feel that there is a different process for you of writing? Is it a relief to put things down and not sort of mask them in fiction? And I'm gonna ask you again to, to speak up a little bit in, in your answers, sorry. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Um, uh, so um, one thing I noticed, and this is sort of alongside the question you just asked, one thing I noticed in, in going back to nonfiction after having written so much fiction is that in the same way that metaphor works in fiction, it works in nonfiction. So there's a part of I'll be seeing you when I went to a concert, I went to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and um, it was a beautiful concert and I was sitting behind an older couple and he was really old and um, when it came time for intermission, it was very difficult for him to get up out of his chair and get up to his walker and go, go up the aisle. Um, when they came back from intermission, they sat at the end of the row so that he wouldn't have to struggle 
climbing over people and so that he could get a head start so that when the concert was over and it was so you know he was still such a handsome guy he must have been in his 90s so well dressed and his wife too and he put his arm around her which just about killed me dead and i i could see at different points during the concert that they were looking at each other to see are are you enjoying this i hope you're enjoying this so that was a love story playing out before my eyes and and when he got up to leave everyone was still clapping they were taking their bows but he he had to get a head start and i wanted it to be that the people who were saying bravo bravo were saying it for him that he still came out that he still went to the concert that he made it up the aisle in his walker and of course i was thinking about my parents what they were going through and that and bravo for them that in the midst of all this they still held on to that essential core of themselves because it got very rough. People got crabby, including my mother. My mother to my father, me to my mother, my sister and I ganged up on my mother. I was not proud of that behavior, but I confess it because it's true. And I think that it's an integral part in, in presenting a difficult situation like this, that you own up to your own mistakes. And I hope that someone will read that and say, okay, so check that. Remember to do something before you get to that level of anger. I'm not muted anymore. Um, it's hard to, I don't think anybody behaves like a saint when you're dealing with a parent who is sick or who is failing. I mean, and if they are behaving like a saint, then nobody really wants to know about those people, right? But it just, it's such a hard, it's such a crucible to go through. And I think what you're talking about with whether it's fiction or nonfiction is exactly why I read and exactly why I write that I hope to reflect some of my experience back to people, whether it's through my own voice or through a character's experiences and they feel less alone. Yeah, it's really lonely. So um, fiction and nonfiction helps me feel less alone in whatever I'm going through. And if I'm really in pain, I will turn to a book because you know there is some wisdom there. Um, what is, if you had one anecdote to share about your parents that's illustrative of the love that they had for each other that you're exploring in I'll Be Seeing You, what would it be? Well, in the book, I guess there are, are a lot of them in, in their whole lives, but in, in the book, um, my dad got Alzheimer's and um, uh, we it was a burden for my mother. It was um, it, at the point when it wasn't horrible yet. It was just that he would say these things that you would go, what? Um, but we were going to take my mother out because he was he was saying people are breaking into the car and that hooligans stole the lid of the garbage cans and and he was trying to block the a closet so that they couldn't come in things like that. But um, for the most part, he was doing okay. So we want my sister and I wanted to take my mother out because she needed a break or take him out with us because my mother needed a break. Sorry. We were going to take him clothes shopping, and um, he said, "No, I, 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 he needed clothes desperately because he'd lost so much weight." He said, "No, I, I, I don't want to go." And we said, 
why don't you want to go? And our feelings were kind of hurt because we were such swell broads and why wouldn't he want to spend the afternoon with us? And finally he said, your mother might need something. You know, and, and he had so, he had so little muscle mass. I mean, and um, and my mother said, what? What, what, what might happen to me if you go? And he said, you might fall down the stairs. I mean, he was looking out for her always, always. And even when, when, when they moved into the place they finally ended up living in, he would take his mobile scooter and park it against the door at night so no one could get in and, and, and hurt his wife. So um, she, he, he lost his mother at a very early age. I think he was three when his mother died. He was raised by a, a taciturn housekeeper who made him eat all his dinner if he wanted dessert, then flip the plate over and eat the dessert on that side. Um, and his, his father was a very withdrawn, cold man. I never saw my grandfather smile. So that's what he came from. So when he met my mother, who was kind of lively and fun and pretty, and um, she was his North Star and remained so for all of his life. Uh, they had what my agent describes as, uh, as a Reagan-esque marriage where there was no room for anyone else, really. I love that. What was that like to be? I have so many questions. Like, how do you find love like that? And especially if you're raised by a taciturn, plate-flipping housekeeper. But what is it like to be a child watching this marriage if it doesn't have room for other people in it? You know, I've talked to my brother and my sister about this. It, it, it was as though we were all our own little planets. They were the sun and the moon and, and we were our own little planets. We all sort of fended for ourselves. I told my brother once, it must not have been a very flattering thing to say. I said, all through high school, I don't remember you. Where were you? <laughs> and he could probably say the same back to me, but I, I think that it it... It teaches you to ask yourself for things that you need to have. Um, and it also, as I say, very early on in the book, it sets an impossibly high standard. I knew, I, I began to see that I would never have a relationship like that. That's really tough stuff, trying to have a relationship like they did. I would need to be a much better person and a more giving and generous person to have a relationship like they did more patient. My mom was was pretty patient because he was scary. He was really scary when I was growing up. He was an army guy, a lifer in the army. And man, when he said jump, you said how high. And it took a long time for us to reconcile the fear that I had of him growing up into the outsized love that I ended up having for him. And he had big shoulders too, right? So he yeah. was an imposing guy, even when he got old. That's something that stuck with me from yeah. reading yeah. memoir. It was like big guy. I love the, the, sorry, go ahead. But he, but he gentled down. He gentled down, which is, I think is, is one of the best things about aging is that you do lose some of the rough edges. You do, even if you're an impatient person like me, you get a little more patient. And um, you have a little better perspective. And um, I feel that older people really have a lot to offer. It's, it's, a, it's a, an aggravation to me that older people aren't given the, um, 
the attention that they deserve because they have so much to offer. I agree with that. And I'm, I agree with the gentling down of sometimes um, difficult or difficult personalities or very loudly broadcasting personalities. Even my mom, who was like Aurora Greenway from Terms of Endearment, except with red hair. Um, in her last year, I remember she was very impatient. She was like a toddler. Like she had this attention span of like a two-year-old, which is why I always let her read my first drafts of my books. Because if she could sit through a whole book, then I knew it was a good book. Um, but in her last year, there were times where she could sit still. And I one of my favorite memories of her is sitting with her in a car. We were gonna go to the beach and she couldn't make it to the beach. So we stayed in the parking lot in the car and we watched um, in Florida, some parrots. There were these green parrots in a tree. And my mom who could never sit more than five minutes in her life without going and throwing a party somewhere, just like sat and smoked her cigarettes which she was like, you know, clutching to the grave and, you know, said like, aren't they beautiful? Aren't they just so beautiful? They're so phosphorescent, like that green color. And I thought, wow, who are you? Like, thank you for giving me this moment. I always thought that might be there. And I know you write a lot and with great tenderness about characters who are older, like Arthur Truelove, for instance. And is that one of the reasons that you love Arthur Truelove so much? and the series. Can you talk a little bit about that book? Yeah, you know, um, one of the, um, I, I, I told you a little about my grandparents and also I was raised in army brats. So I lived six years in Germany and I never saw my grandparents and I did not live in the state that they did, this being my mother's um, parents. Um, I, I just didn't see them. So I didn't have a lot of experience with older people. But when I first went into nursing, many people know I was a registered nurse before I became a writer. The first job I had was working in a nursing home and um, it was all old people and I loved them. I just adored them. I, I liked their cardigan sweaters and their high top shoes. And, and I loved, I loved, how long they live and the stories they tell me. And um, it was there that, that I first got this great love of older people. So I put them a lot in my books, older people. And Arthur Trulove is sort of the old person to end all old people for me. Um, he, he, was, he had a sense of humor. He'd been through a lot. He was compassionate. He was wise. He was so giving. He didn't, he didn't have any ego about things. Um, so it was a pleasure to be around him. And I wrote his character and I, and I wrote about that fictional town because for years now, I, I know I, wa I wanted to compartmentalize this and not bring any sadness in, but let me just briefly say that we've been going through a hard time, not just because of COVID, but for a long time, for many years. Every day I would cry when I read the paper, literally. So I needed to create a place where I could go to where people were kind to one another. And so um, I wrote the story of Arthur Trulove because of that. I wanted, I wrote it, I wrote somewhere I wanted to be. And when I finished it, I still needed to be somewhere like that. So I wrote a second one and then a third one. And now I'm working on fourth one because I still need to be there. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm enraptured by this. So who even knows? I was just thinking about Arthur Trulove. You did something in that book that I always wanted to do and didn't really have the chops to do, I don't think, or the imagination. And Ann Tyler did it too, which is to take somebody who's catapulted out of her own life and into a new place and letting her feel her way around. And that's how she 
becomes acquainted with the people in this lovely town, which is not, I should point out like our town, like there are people who are having struggles and conundra in this town. It's one of the things that I like about your work is you don't shy away from things that are hard, as I said, but um, there also is pie and pie matters. And you know, what kind of pie it is matters. And if it has lard in the crust, it matters most of all. And you know, food matters and kindness and love and people being uncertain and, and feeling their way along. Um, and I just, I think that's so masterful to be able to completely envision from a tabula rasa, like what a character's new life might look like. And I just haven't had sort of the confidence to do that in my own work, but I think it's such a lovely sort of escapist like thing to do. One of our readers asked while we were having this conversation, how you access the emotional cores of your characters in these situations and have them ring so true. And do you use your own experiences or and or do you apply like your own writing advice to your own work, like your advice on craft? Like how how do you do it? How do you make this magic? You know, I I feel like writing is like acting on paper. So you go within yourself to to become another in the same way that you do when you're acting you you try to leave yourself behind and inhabit fully this character that you're writing and if you're having a rapid fire conversation back and forth it can be hard because you're, you're sort of schizophrenic going back and forth and back and forth be this person be that person be this person but it feels very much like that naturally you draw on parts of yourself for every character you create um, in every book that you write, probably, and and I do do that, but I, I guess um, I, I would like to bring a measure of compassion and empathy to every character I write, even the quote bad ones, because that's what makes them real. Because that's how people are. Even the worst people have some pocket of grace inside them somewhere and it has to show it has to show even if it's just a little glimmer um, and we all as human beings have such a complex range of emotions it's one of the most wonderful things about us the way that we can be so kind and so selfish and so happy and so sad so we've got the the tools inside or, or the machinery inside maybe more accurately to say uh, to let us feel those things and so we can draw on those things as as writers do you feel like we were talking about sort of feeling like your own planet in your family's constellation i think i just missed mixed astronomical metaphors there but um do you think that sort of observational position maybe in your own family contributed to being a writer and having like the sort of like lonely planet feeling writers talk a lot about being on the outside of things or feeling like they're on the outside of things and yeah in and saying you know how does this work or how do you how do you fit into this social group or how do you be friends with people or how do you walk down the street i mean i i remember this growing up i was one of those little freaky kids on the playground who was like always like picking up rocks and making up stories and nobody would talk to me <laughs> um which is fine because i had imaginary people to talk to but i feel as though that sort of element of loneliness do you think that honed a little bit what you were just talking about, which is the access to your own emotions. I do, um, but I also think it's just something that you're 
born with. Um, if you're a writer, you are born with the habit of noticing and the inclination to notice. I always think of that Woody Allen thing that he said, I forget in what movie it was, but he's talking about two trains passing each other. And on one train, they're having this rollicking party. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff going on. And on the other train, everybody's just sitting quietly. And he's saying, that's me. I'm the watcher. I watch. And I, I have to say that even at this ripe old age, I'm still most comfortable hanging on the periphery of the room and watching what's going on rather than being involved. And God forbid on the dance floor because I'm such a bad dancer. Say people people say, oh, you just say that. Everybody can dance. I cannot. I was at Tipitina's in New Orleans and a guy asked me to dance and I said, I can't dance. He, you can, you can, uh, said, no, I really can't dance. And he took me out on the dance floor and after about 30 seconds, he said, wow, you really can't dance. And he let me go. Did you step on him? <laughs> he stepped on his feet? Yes. Punched that him was one of the things. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a skill. I think it's an anti-skill. I once cleared a whole nightclub by getting up on the stage when I was on like some mind altering stuff. Really? 19. I'm like, I'm going to dance in that cage because one does at 19. And I got in the cage and I was like, boop, boop, you know, nightclub cleared out. I mean, it's a gift. It's, I, mean, I like saved all these people from being consumed by a fire or something. Right. So, I mean, that's how I, I choose to think of it. Um, Speaking of observing, I noticed that you do this or the characters do it in all of your books where they will look at a character at any person their vision lands on, like a nurse or a diner waitress or a bird eating a worm or a flower and conjecture as to what's happening inside that person. Do you do this like every day, like still just as a sort of a habit, a reflex? It won't stop, Jenna. <laughs> it won't stop. Yeah, go past the guy making the pizza in the window, you know, and I could watch that for hours. Well, again, you're a better writer than I am because I'd be like, ooh, pizza. <laughs> I'm being distracted by food. I'm like, oh, who cares what he's thinking? Here's a pizza. Do you ever, and this is a, just a sort of a weird, a weirdo writer question, but do you ever get a feeling about some people that's stronger than other people, like real life people where you feel like they're actually sort of broadcasting to you, like what that, like, almost like a mood or an emotion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep, dark secrets of crazy writers. Yeah, absolutely. You can just walk past, well, I shouldn't say you, but I bet it's you too, but I can walk past a person and it's like, what? What was that? Uh, there's just something. It's their aura, or it's or it's their. I don't know what it is, but but it is as though they're loud and they're quiet. You know, you you can really you get attracted to certain things in a very strong way. Yes, and it's it's almost like a taste, like a mental taste, and you're like, oh, that's what it's like to be that person, and then it goes away. Like it's a strain. I don't even know if I can quantify it or put it in words and use it, but it gives me hope that maybe, I mean, I could be just making all of this bleep up because again, that's what I do. But I feel as though, like I love that about what you do and what I do is that we get to imagine yeah, it, that we can translate these things into words. And for me, it's a kind of wondering what, what it's like to be, what is it like to be that person? And the way to find out to the extent that we think we do is to write it, to become that person. And then you think you know, and you could be very wrong, but you answer it to your satisfaction anyway.
Yes, it's super fun. You get to go into other people's skins and walk around for a while. <laughs> Outfits, right? And, you know, <laughs> bikini bodies. <laughs> um, do you ever, what is it like for you to write A, characters you don't like that much, who maybe, you know, the pocket of grace, everybody has pockets of grace. I might, you know, I'm sitting on my own lips not to ask political questions about that statement, but you know, when you have characters who have only tiny pockets of grace in them, how is it to write those characters? And then also, what is it like for you to write male characters? Well, writing male characters is just, it, it was surprising to me to feel as though this isn't so hard. I think, I think, um, as, as someone who observes personalities and sees consistencies in certain types of personalities, namely men, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought. And of course, I'm gonna be gracious and say that they have the same, you know, they have the same difficulties we do, not exactly the same. And um, so it's not, not that much of a stretch. Um, and then about the difficult characters, I'll tell you that when I wrote uh, the story of Arthur Trulove, there's a woman named Lucille Howard, who I meant to be the sweetest, sweetest old lady. And she said, not on your life, not me. And she's really a pain. And I loved writing her. I was so happy when scenes of her came along because they were so much fun to write. Sometimes it's fun to write people you don't like because they say the most outrageous things. And sometimes it's, it's, it's like the Howard Stern phenomenon, like they're saying things that you might be thinking yourself or wish you could say. Um, and I think that readers, myself included, often really like reading these awful characters, you know, the, the one you love to hate, so to speak. Um, so um, I, I think the difficulty is in um, balance so that you're not, you're not uh, overwhelming a reader with all this. I don't, I don't like to write really negative books or, or, um, or books that are sad without some sort of redemption. Um, and I don't, I don't like to write violence um, or you know somebody killing somebody. I, some people do it really, really well, and some people like to read that stuff. My mother included. She loved those scary books, thrillers, rippers. You know, she loved that stuff. But I, but I don't. I think it's I think it's hard enough being here. So I try to I try to provide something else. Some respite. I know when I read Stephen King religiously, but I have to read it like this because I actually don't read it for the supernatural or the horror um, elements of it. I read it for the psychology. Like I think he's really yeah. good with people, but I'm with you. We run a mighty mystery series on a mighty blaze every Tuesday. And uh, my friend, Sarah DeVello interviews all the mystery writers and is talking about like the sort of like stabbings and killing. I mean, the writers talk about the psychological underpinnings of their characters. That is interesting, but I can't read a thriller plot for that reason. Like I, you know, I, I can watch Lifetime. That's about it. I can watch a woman get pushed off an interior balcony. That's about like as far as, <laughs> as far as I can go, you know. Um, speaking that's of- so great about books though, right? Is that there is something for everyone. And and I love gra uh, Linda Berry who writes graphic novels. There's graphic novels there's horror there's thrillers there's poetry which is such a such a oh such a bomb to the soul especially these days there is something for you to love no matter what you like in reading 
Yes, always. And what do you return to? Like I return to you when I need to read something that is nourishing. Who do you read when you are wanting to nourish yourself or just like, who do you return to? Who are the writers you return to? I would say there are two, first and foremost. Alice Munro is, is one, the Canadian primarily short story writer who cannot write a bad sentence um, and has such psychological acuity. She is astonishing. And I, I don't, I try not to think about how the sausage is made as you were talking about before. I try not to do that, but I can't help it when I read her. I, I find myself saying, how did she do that? In this one sentence that she presented this whole world of personality. So she's, she's right at the top of the list. Also Ann Tyler, I, I, Ann Tyler is a kind of literary aphrodisiac for me. When I read her, I get so excited. I feel like writing, you know, um, but I love her. I love her little oddities and her language and the eccentric characters that she creates. Um, there are short story writers I, I really adore. Um, there are essayists like William Maxwell and E.B. White um, who are, it's like butter on bread. I mean, they're just, they're just so smooth and, and rich to read. Um, and again, poetry, um, I go back to over and over because it soothes me. There's a, a poet named Barbara Crooker, and I love her poetry. She shows up all the time on the Writer's Almanac, um, if you ever um, read that or subscribe to it. Also, Jane Hirschfield, Mary Oliver, Ted Couser. Billy Collins, all of these are very accessible poets. I think sometimes when people hear poetry, they think, oh my God, no, no. Um, but if you don't like poetry, it's just because you haven't found your poet yet. And, and above all, um, for me, the, the poets I like best are real storytellers in such a compact, beautiful way. And so soothing with things about nature. Um, and so on, which, which, by the way, if I could plug one of my own books, which I hate doing, I really hate promoting it, my own books, because I'm waiting for my mom to say, well, don't we find ourselves special? <laughs> um, but, um, these little books, Happy to Be Here is the latest one, Make Someone Happy, Still Happy, and Happy to Be Here. These are, are compilations of Facebook posts, at, which were done at the request of readers. When enough people asked, I finally said, well, fine, okay, I'll do it. And they're like little chapbooks and you can read just one little entry and they're meant to make you happy. They're meant to give you relief. Even if I write about the death of my dog, Homer, which I did and still happy, it's still meant to lift you up in the end. Um, so that's what the poets do for me. It's a very succinct way of, ah. I think that too, I kind of came to poetry in a sort of a back asswards way. We learned it in high school and it was all of the, you know, sort of Byronic poets and the sonnets and the, um, the iambic pentameter. And I had found that sort of dry. And the first poet I plugged into is not actually known for her poetry. It was Erica Jong who wrote a collection oh. of poems called Becoming Light and they were narrative. So I wasn't thinking necessarily about iambic pentameter. I was thinking about what it felt like to inhabit the body of a woman and she's telling a 
story. It's just in a different way, in a very encapsulated kind of snapshot way. And I feel as though a lot of the poets you're talking about do the same thing. They do it with nature, like Mary Oliver. I have, you know, plastered all over my walls everywhere. Um, but just to, they tell stories, they're just telling them in a more condensed way. And the literary aphrodisiac that you mentioned in terms of Ann Tyler, I sometimes get that from poetry. It's like a, a yeah. road gets applied to my temples and I think, oh my God, I now have to write a poem because I can do that. And then it grows into a story, it grows into a book. And yeah. so I love that that's a source of inspiration for you. I wanted to talk about the happy books and I, I also need to track our time because I can talk to you for six hours, but I probably kept you for like already, you know, five and a half hours. But um, I'll track the time and take some questions from people. Two questions I had is I have to share this with you because of okay. what you just said. Listen to okay. this quote by Ted Kuzer. Okay. And you, you do this, by the way, as, as a writer. We are learning the way in which stories end, how they drift into near silence, yet leave an after ringing like a bell. And I, for me, the best stories, yours included, do that. So the story's over and it and it resonates on. You keep thinking about it. Isn't that a good quote? I love it's that. It's a really good quote. Thank you for like running over me. I was like getting sort of puppyish and like bouncing around. Like I have so many questions. Oh, no, I'm, so, I'm sorry for it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, no, I love that. I would much rather hear that and like take a breath and think about the ringing of the literary bell. I think that is, is beautiful. Um, and those vibrations hopefully lodge in people where they keep ringing yeah. and reverberating. Um, do you read poetry every day? Do you read every day? I read every day, definitely, and I read poetry almost every day. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got probably three different books of poetry at my bedside, and I have a bazillion of them all over the house. Um, but the ones I mentioned are my are my favorites. I love to really like vitamins. They're like that sort of like literary. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk about the happy books are you are actually sending these to people yes like people can get them through you is oh, that my understanding yes um bill and i um go on these self-made tours every summer and it's so much fun we just we just say are there any libraries in the state of missouri that would like us to come and then they say yeah you can come so we go to these places and and in those instances um i i bring books to sell and of course we didn't do that this summer so um yeah i have not not many um the, the thing about the happy books is i publish them so they're not um all my books are in bookstores but these books are not usually in bookstores nor can you always get them from bookstores but i have I think I have 11 of happy to be here. And then I have one little lonely copy of make someone happy. So, uh, and I have, I think I have 50 of first edition story of Arthur True Love. And um, so here's the, here's the a mighty blaze special deal of the day, ding, 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 is that the first two people who, there will be instructions, I think, for wh what you need to do to, if you would like to get a book. The first few people who um, request the story of Arthur True Love will get it for free, including postage and all that. And then the rest That's of you- That is crazy. And you're signing them, yes? Yeah. 
and then and then for the rest of the people you can get it for 20 bucks which includes postage which means you're paying about 15 dollars for a first edition signed personalized hardcover that's a good deal it's a good deal people and it's coming from this study like elizabeth nancy myers looking study so you should be paying fifteen thousand dollars for this book and it is now 150 percent discounted i just made that up I'm like not a math person. Yeah, math. That is very generous. I'm going to ask, and I have a viewer question also, but I wanted to ask about what inspired you to put the happy posts from Facebook into the books that you're, that you've created. Um, I often think Facebook for me is almost like a journal in some sense. It's like where I've been and it's, it's a visual journal and it almost acts like poetry, except I'm, I'm not aspiring to be poetic, but they're like these snapshots of life, which is and all of your posts, which I follow avidly, are like these mini essays. Like you and Joyce Maynard also does this. Where you will post these mini essays about your life every day. So readers, if you're not following Elizabeth yet on Facebook, you should, because you get like this fabulous content. Like, but it's, it's all. So what inspired you to put them all together in these books? Well, I should say it's not every day, but it's a lot. I kind of never shut up. Um, so um, I, I made books out of Facebook posts because one of the people on Facebook said, would you please do a book of these because I'm tired of printing them out and they don't look nice. And, and I thought, oh, that's so nice. I'm never gonna do that. And then someone else asked and then someone else asked. And finally I thought, well, okay, fine. I'll just, I'll, I'll do that. And so my friend Phyllis designed the covers and she did all the business part that I'm so terrible at. Um, so you can get them, um, from Amazon for 12 bucks, or you, if you want to sign personalized, the instructions will be there. But I, but I did it by reader request actually. And I asked my publisher, do you want to publish my Facebook post? And they said, no. No, we don't actually ever want to do that. And don't ever ask us again. Yeah, I know. Right? My agent has actually done quite well. So I'm, you know, like I'm because people love happiness and they love reading what you write and, and, right, and you do know. want these keepsakes of yeah, like, the things and, that you and write. You know, I think, I think most, essentially what they are is a reminder of what joy and beauty there is in ordinary life so that if i have a conversation with a kid or i see some event in nature or i um have a really good recipe that i'm dying to share and oh we we really have to cook a meal sometime jenna that would be yes so yes we um, must with rhubarb uh, or, and sugar. or you know insights that i have into something um it's all it's all there um some sometimes my dogs talk and I'm, I'm very sorry that Austin made no appearance whatsoever. He won't even come upstairs. He must have heard me say something bad about him. I heard you thought Austin was, you're like, Austin, Austin, where are you? He's like, nowhere. I will get Henry, my puppy, um, at the end of this. I don't know where he is, and it's very quiet in the house. So obviously a shoe somewhere is being destroyed, but I'll, I'll bring him over here to show him to you. Um, three questions. One from a viewer, which is we were sort of talking about um, things that are like everyday things that are beautiful, which I think are the vibrance in your work. Um, what do you do to make your nonfiction especially vibrant? Like as a as a journalist, as an essayist, as a memoirist, like what advice do you give to people who are writing nonfiction to make work vibrant? 
you know, there's a there's a wonderful quote by a photographer, Walker Percy, about it's it's something like if the thing is there, why there it is. And and I I think um I think I'm mangling the quote, but the point is that all of this is all around us all the time. And there's a quote by Degas, which I do remember, which is art is not what you see, but what you make others see. And so I think it's it's a matter of presenting on a platter. You know, in, in some ways as a writer, you're still that little kid bringing home a dandelion bouquet to your mom and saying, look, see, see. So if I see something beautiful or funny or, or something that really instructs me, um, I want to share it. So you can, you can state it so plainly. I think it was Garrison Keillor who said, you don't have to gild the lily. All you have to do is say rhubarb pie and the reader gets it, you know? Um, so um, I, I think it's a, a kind of service that we're lucky as writers to be able to provide others with this kind of going out with our begging basket, as they say, and filling it up with things and then offering it to people. And we are so gratified when people see and say, oh, I knew that was there, but you reminded me. Totally. And I was thinking how lucky when you were talking, we are to have this audience so that when we do have like our bouquet of dandelions or like the light shining off a wall in a certain way or the smell of gasoline or pavement after it rains or like any or rhubarb pie for that matter, mm -hmm. we're able, we have people who we can bring into who appreciate it. Like that is such a, a joy for me to always have to feel like I always have that sort of audience. Did you think you ever would, Jenna? Did you think you'd be a writer? I, well, yeah, <laughs> I did, because it was all I ever wanted to be and all I ever felt that I was any good at being was bringing the things to people and saying like, look, a dead frog, you know, and like, or whatever, which is, you know, the kind of stuff I write about. Um, it was, it was really all I ever wanted to do. So I thought if I can't do this, then I'm going to be a sort of a worthless and lonely person and that's why I feel so especially gratified that there are people who will look at like the things that I bring them and I never forget that I never lose sight of that yeah. uh, did you did you ever think that you no. would I always wrote I, I started out writing this god-awful poetry which I submitted when I was nine um, but I never thought I would be a writer I, I thought you had to be a man and have an English accent and and I it was so I, it was impossible for me to think that, that could actually happen but um I became a nurse and and then I I um I wanted to stay home with my daughters so uh, a magazine parents magazine was having an essay contest which I entered and won and began submitting essays to that magazine as well as virtually every other magazine on the market and that's how I did that for 10 years is wrote essays and that's what got me started but no I, like you I am I am always daily grateful for the fact that I can be a writer it is it is um I never dreamed of it that, that it could really happen so I how did you get like a fake you know yeah, yeah the imposter syndrome we talk about that a lot we all are have you the Jana Bloom and you go what do you what are you talking about? Yeah, no, no, right. I know when I hear myself introduced at events, I always say, well, that's a hard act to follow <laughs> because that doesn't, you know, really it's like the person they're describing and the person they're they're in a yoga <laughs> pants. I'm just, right. I'm looking, I'm like, 
you need to talk in movie <laughs> Woody Allen moments. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a little different from the person who's like bringing the dandelions and saying like, I hope I made them pretty enough for you to look at and like sitting around in my disgusting yoga pants day after day um, and, and trying to make that happen. It's such a far cry from the sort of accolades. What was it like? What is the most surprising moment of your writer's success life? Like, I always want to ask you about like the Oprah book club pick, because when you say Oprah at one of these events, people go, Ooh, oh, yeah, that was a, a good day. That's yeah. a good day, right? That wasn't, that wasn't the best day. That wasn't the best day. Okay, tell me the best um, day. Best day was, was um, I had written uh, 90 pages of my first novel. And I thought I had something, but I wasn't sure. And and some days I would read it and say, ooh, this is really good. And other days I would read it and say, oh, this is so embarrassing. But I sent it to my agent and she sent it to two publishers on a Friday. And on the following Monday, they both called wanting to buy it. That was the best day. That was, that was just um, validation in you know an extreme validation i didn't even get dressed that day i couldn't get dressed all i could do is walk around and wonder that this happened could you even believe it i mean did it take you some time to be like what um no i, I mean i i thought i i guess i i thought it was kind of real especially after i i went to new york and met with both editors and decided who i wanted to go with and then it became very real. Um, but there is, I think for me and a lot of writers, still an air of unreality about, about the whole thing. We tend to be very shy, introspective people, writers, really. And when we write about those things that you so beautifully described, they are really for us. They are for us to transfer from what's in here out there because it has to come out. And then the second part of the process is getting it out there and getting into publishing, which has its ups and downs. But what's very beautiful is when you have that moment of understanding that, yes, that's what I wanted to say. That's it. That's it right there on the page. That's it. Nothing matches that. No, it's really good. And do you ever have those moments where something lands on you? Like you're trying to say something and it actually matches what you see in your head, which is a, a moment of triumph, right? But do you ever have a moment when you're in the process of like being the furnace that is like sort of smelting out this creation and all of a sudden a line seems to come from nowhere and lands on yes. you? It's fantastic. Not, not just a line either. Sometimes I'll write a whole page of prose that I'll take out of the printer. I don't remember writing it. It's as though It's as though you lose yourself to this trance and it just comes flowing up. That's a good writing day. That is such a good, I had like one of those in my study upstairs here in my house in Minnesota, I remember writing about Grand Central Station and it was a blocking scene. Like the character has to go from one point in the station to get on a train. So it was this throwaway, you know, I thought it would be like a paragraph. And when I was in the middle of writing it, this whole sort of hall of echoes came to me, like this, this sort of hall of memories that the character has and um, sort of stirred around in the, in the, um, nave of the roof of Grand Central Station. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, I, I was, felt like I was transcribing. 
Yes. Those are my favorite moments with these moments, yes. like total grace that you're not actually looking for. They don't fit into the structure of the book. Necessarily. My whole writing class is like, aha, something outside the outline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these moments that land on you. And I find, for me, at least they're the ones that readers respond to. The yes. Most yes. Them. They're the truest. Yeah. Yeah. And they kind of say, this line spoke to me so much. But when I say thank you, I feel like an imposter then because I don't feel like I was responsible for coming up with that. <laughs> that I confessed that and I was like this is what grace feels like for a writer yes exactly on you and then you can give them to other people and you have no idea where they come from it's so amazing right do you remember okay so here's a question your story about going to New York and meeting with the two editors when you were like a, a very young writer for your first book do you remember what you wore and do you remember what it was like to walk into the publishing houses that day or were you just like I'm in Oz well so I, I I went to restaurants so I, I remember that that the editor uh, Kate Medina from Random House is the editor I chose and it was Cafe Des Artistes and I couldn't eat a bite I was so overwhelmed and I apologize I, and I'm such a pig I mean I'm such an eater and I could not eat this beautiful meal because I, I I was just up to here with excitement um and I'm I'm afraid I I wore I probably wore one of those was it called liberty dresses you know the little prints and then I'm not a good dresser. I'm sure it was beautiful. <laughs> I asked this because I remember going to meet with my agent for the first time and I wore all black. And of course it was in New York. And it oh, was summer. Chic. It was not chic because it was summer and it was 9,000 degrees and 900% humidity. And I was an hour early because I was so nervous and I walked around the block in front of the agency <laughs> to kill time. And so by the time I got up to meet my agent, I was like dripping with sweat. And I was like, hello, let me hug you. <laughs> she still took a chance on me, but it has taken me 18 years to eat in front of my agent honestly and she is French and she's like Jenna you have to eat something I have ordered us a brie you I know you love cheese like you mind like finally like I knew that we were actually friends as well as industry you know comrades because I could eat in front of her and be like give me some of that bread from your plate <laughs> um I would like to hear a favorite dog story of yours also since we're both dog moms like avid dog moms oh man Tell me yours because that caught me by surprise. I okay, okay, something favorite. Well, the reason I was thinking of that is I was thinking about your happy books and your essay about Homer and or the post about Homer. And I, that's actually not a very happy, a happy moment, but it was really meaningful to me um, when I read the story about or the Facebook post about Homer's passing. It was helpful to me. And for those of you who haven't read it, and you should. Um, Elizabeth's post about Homer was about his last day, I think, and you knew it was his last day. And so you went and laid in the grass with him and talked to him and, you know, just about your journey together. And when I read that, my old boy was, my old boy Woodrow was like, I want to say 14 and he made it to 15, but I kind of knew that his crossing was coming. And I felt that whole time, like I was going toward Niagara in a barrel. Like, you know, I had survived other things, but I was like, I don't honestly know if I'm going to survive this, this losing this creature and reading that about Homer. Of course, I was like, oh, God, you know, but I also felt so, um, so much less alone because I read that post, which is exactly what we've been talking about. Like, that's why you read, that's why you write to sort of reach a hand out across difficult experiences and say you're less alone. And it gave me the courage to, to say, you know what, I know this is coming, 
but like every day I have with him is a good day. Like even the last day when you lie in the grass, it's a good day. So, and I will also something like awfully tear jerky, but um, the behind the scenes on this is that um, Elizabeth was going to come to my apartment and meet Woodrow when he was very, very old. He was 15. Um, and so I had made a cake because <laughs> I'm like, there'll be dog and there'll be cake. And you finally get to meet this ancient, ancient creature. Um, and the morning you were supposed to come over, it was the morning that he passed. And so I remember texting you at like four in the morning and being like, I'm so sorry. It's not a great time. Like the dog is dying. But, but I felt like you were with me in that moment because you knew what it was like to go through this. And so that's not my happiest dog moment, I guess, but it's like one of my favorites because somebody who's yeah. not physically with you can still be with you in a time of great loss. So yeah. I thank you for that. It oh. was Oh, I'm so sorry I, I didn't get to meet him, but uh, but I got so much out of your posts about him. Um, I, I think one of the, the things that helps when our dogs get old and they're, it's inevitable is to understand how much smarter they are about it than we and, and how I, I, I really felt like, you know, I, I, I wrote in that book that, that I was telling him, you know, Homer, when this is over, you're not going to hurt anymore, and you're going to, you know, blah, blah. And, and he said, if you need to think that, that's okay. But I'm all right. I'm with you. I love you. I had a good life. Oh, God, I'm going to get going again. But here's a good memory is um, when I got my first golden retriever, um, he was uh, in this batch of sort of unwanted puppies and and I could I saw a picture of them all I was thinking oh they're all so cute how am I going to decide how will I decide when I got to the house there was one puppy who had commandeered every single toy in the room there was a stack of toys over there with a little puppy standing there like don't even think about it and I said that one <laughs> You chose like the the rapacious one, right? Like the one with the lust for life. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, I would choose like the little quiet one in the corner or something, you know. And you're just like, I want the one who's like. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I I I know. I would choose that. I would choose them all actually if I could. But you no, know, I was gonna say, who does not want a whole litter of golden retriever puppies? I do. They put them all in the trunk. Like, I'm going to take them all home. Oh my gosh. So great. I honestly have no idea where my puppy is right now, but I, I will go find him. Oh God. I don't even want to know what's happening. He probably ran away into the corn again. Um, what are you going to dazzle us with next? Do you hate this question? Like what's next? The what's up? Who's on deck next question? No, I no. First of all, thank you for the dazzle thing. Um, uh, no, I, I, I don't like to talk about specifics of what I'm writing, but, um, but I'm, I'm doing the edits of uh, the fourth Mason novel. Um, and um, I'm sure after I turn it in that I'll have to go through it one more time. But then I want to write a collection of sort of informed short stories, kind of creative nonfiction about old boyfriends. And I have a title which is Bluto's girl, because I had a crush on Bluto. I'm so sorry to tell you. <laughs> the Popeye Bluto? <laughs> and Mighty Mouse. And I, I shared that on Facebook. Do you know how many people had crushes on Mighty Mouse? I mean, oh. that mouse had a torso, okay? 
got a torso. As did Pluto. And and I'm recognizing a pattern here. It's something I didn't know about you before. It's all about the torso. Who knew? Okay. All right. A lot of memes. <laughs> have to be right kind of stupid, you know, so you can push them around a little. <laughs> Maybe so, so you can manipulate them, you know, just like. So I think that, you know, I, I just want to go through from the beginning when it was Mighty Mouse and then Pluto and then all the way up into the, you know, I was in third grade and I loved Billy Harris with all my heart. I know nothing about him except that he got picked to be the teacher's assistant and got to write on the blackboard. And so I would write Mrs. Billy Harris on my papers and 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 then you know we we have such heartbreak and such joy and so many experiences with with boyfriends that i think a lot of people also have had or certainly can relate to i am so excited to i always wanted to read uh, write something like that called shapes of men that was not just about the boyfriend ah. but about like men who had influenced me and from like my fifth grade teacher my dad you know my brother shapes of men but and many, many old boyfriends. Um, I am seeing from viewers that many people are very excited about the next Mason novel as well. So oh, you that's have, great. That's great. You have a lot of people anticipating both of those, both of those books, including me, of course. Um, all right. So I seriously, I feel like if you could just walk through the screen right now, that would be good because I do actually have some rhubarb pie from my garden with a brown oh. sugar crumble top. And oh. I kind of feel like I could sit here all day and talk to you about these things and people would be like, okay, when are they, when is Jenna going to stop talking? So I'm going to let everybody else go and we can sit here and talk about the pie for a little bit, but thank you for, for yes, dazzling us literally with all of your stories and your books and your study and your smile and and just your Eunice. Like, thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. Such a joy for me. I hope everybody else enjoyed it. Cause like for me, I'm just like, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. And, and if there happens to be anyone who's not come to a mighty blaze before come all the time, it's just wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Oh, I love you so much. And oh, wait, I have to do my concluding statement. Don't oh, God, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So here's what Ooh. I have to say that, that writing is a joy, but the readers, who bother to take the time to read what I write. Here's how you make me feel. And I'm gonna ask that you close your eyes. Nobody will do it because they probably have problems with authority figures like I do. But close your eyes and okay, now open them. Here's how you make me feel. Uh, <laughs> this thing hurts. <laughs> heavy, heavy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> never prom queen <laughs> it's never too late you like you are the reader's prom queen uh -huh. oh my okay anyway thank you oh my god thank you so much elizabeth you are just a total total freaking delight thank you thank you for joining us i'm trisha blanchett for a mighty blaze podcast if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing and leaving a review to help other book lovers find us. Join us next time for a conversation with actor and author David Duchovny. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.